everyone, and welcome to Issue 17 of Hey, That's Comics. I, of course, am your host, Gary Webb. I tweeted out this week that there would not be an episode this week, but I realized it was just the club that was holding me up. The holiday and such ate up some of the time, but, you know, I had a soapbox and an ever-growing weekly poll on tap, so I decided to add a few to this week's releases, and we'd try a comic clubless show just to see how it worked out. Still haven't had any of you reach out about what you like or don't like about the show, so we'll give it a try. If you do have some thoughts on the show or the world of comics in general, you can reach out to me at Hey That's Comics on Instagram or Twitter. You can email me at Hey That's Comics at Outlook.com, or you can click on that link in the show notes and leave me an audio message that I can play on air and incorporate it right here into the show. Alright, so with housekeeping out of the way, let's take a look at what we've got on tap this week. In the soapbox, I'm going to give you my thoughts on the just-concluded DC Universe show, Titan Season 2, before we switch on over to our longest weekly poll yet. Here we're going to take some deep looks at the latest Tale from the Dark Multiverse with Infinite Crisis, before we get into our giant-sized X-Watch number 1, with looks at the first two issues of New Mutants, X-Force, and Fallen Angels, before catching up with numbers 2 and 3 of X-Men. As I said, even without the club, we have a lot on tap, so let's just get this thing going with Slade Soapbox. Slade Soapbox. As I mentioned, there's only one topic on tap in the Soapbox this week, as I want to talk about DC Universe's Titans. For the most part, I really enjoyed Season 2. They took the groundwork from Season 1, which was so laser-focused on introducing the cast, and really opened it up to the universe this year, which I'm all for. Fleshing out the history of the original Titans with touching on Aqualad and, of course, Jericho, helped build up the sense of history, all while serving to further the role of this year's big bad Deathstroke. Now, speaking of Slade, I felt they did a nice job with him for the majority of the season. I love Manu, Bennett, and Arrow, but this was a much more faithful interpretation that I felt, and right up until the end, I thought they really nailed the essence of the Terminator here. No, you didn't miss an Arnold cameo. We're talking Deathstroke the Terminator here. It's a title. With her father and half-brother being so integral to the story, we also got introduced to Rose, who was just as important. At first, yet another stray for Grayson to take in, we find out she's been cast in the role of Tara Markov from the Judas Contract, as she's working with her father to help avenge Jericho's death. Now, unlike Tara, Rose has a change of heart and steps up to help Dick at the end, but her actions still have consequences, as she may as well have been the straw that broke Jason's back. Robin 2, Jason Todd, played a much larger role this season as Bruce had placed him with the team, but it's not looking to have had that effect that one might want. Rose's mind games with the team, getting blamed on him, furthering his sense of abandonment, following the team's breakup with Dick admits it's his fault that Jericho died, Jason then latches on to his final hope, Rose, only to again be betrayed as she comes clean about working with Slade. And with everything mounting up on him with his background, this is the final strike as he finally goes off on his own from there, missing that final battle, and I'm left to wonder if we might not be getting the Red Hood before too much longer. Now, perhaps this all could have been avoided if Dick's head was in the game, but he's clearly lost in a drift most of the season. He's no longer Robin, but again he's got a family when Deathstroke returns and sends him chasing his own doubts for most of season two. Well, I felt that they drugged that out a bit much. If it wasn't for the long journey to Nightwing, we wouldn't have seen much of Bruce Wayne, who I ended up liking despite being unsure at first. He still doesn't scream Bruce Wayne to me, but I'm interested in seeing a bit more from him. 
Now, and I can't, of course, talk about all of this without mentioning that they, of course, brought Con L to live action, which is something that I've been hoping to see since the days of Lois and Clark. I believe they did do a version of him in Smallville, but I haven't made it that far into that series yet, so this was just behind wanting to see Nightwing for me going into Season 2. While it's not the leather jacket-wearing, smart-ass teen that I originally fell in love with, I thought I did well with the character, although if I have to really be honest, Crypto might be my favorite Kryptonian that they introduced this year. He's such a good boy. Now, with all that that we just discussed is what I'd love, but there was definitely some things that I was less than a fan of. While I like pretty much all of our characters, all of the new faces kind of left our original cast without much to do for large parts of the season. I get that Corey's year was basically spent setting up Blackfire for next season, but I don't understand why they're hunting for her now when Season 1 established that she was sent there on a mission to kill Rachel. Now, speaking of whom, I didn't think she had a whole lot going on, although the dark part of her acting independently could lead us somewhere. These two issues could be addressed with where those threads actually take us in the future, but I don't think they can fix the finale as, for the second year in a row, the ending left me feeling extremely underwhelmed. I felt that the epic battle that we've been building up to all season between Dick and Slade was extremely rushed to the point that it invalidated a large part of the season. I get that it's the big unveiling, of the big coming out of Nightwing, which they totally nailed. I love the way he looks, the way he fought, everything about it. But it's brief and extremely one-sided as he and Rose kill Wilson, making me wonder just why the combined team couldn't have done it at any point throughout the season. Then we get Jericho jumping into Rose's body at the last minute, finally escaping being trapped inside Slade at his death, but we don't get much from it as it's immediately off to stop Gar and Connor, who are out of control under the influence of Lex Luthor's right hand, Mercy Graves. Now, it essentially ends up with Rachel again reaching through to them, which I felt was a bit soon since we had just done it the same thing in the opener with Trigon, but okay, she's an empath, I get it, whatever. But on the heels of that, Donna dies saving Dawn from a falling tower, which is electrocuted in the process. This is my biggest problem of them all, is it just doesn't make sense. Amazons, or those with their heritage, don't go down that easily. And I know Rachel is going to Themyscira, and maybe they'll use that to transition her to Troy as they bring her back, but this is on top of the rushing of the Slade showdown, left me disappointed. But that does not make the rest of the season a waste, as it was really was a lot of fun, and hopefully we're, go we're done with the team fracturing for now, as the parting shot of them heading out to an emergency, finally, with almost the whole team together, got me going at the end. But unfortunately, we've got an almost entire year to wait to see what's next, so let's turn our attention to something a bit more recent with what I've been reading in the weekly poll. The weekly poll. We got our next trip into the shadows with Tales from the Dark Multiverse Infinite Crisis by James Kenny and the Fourth and Aaron Lepresti. We start out with Tempest Fugonaut, giving us a rundown on Infinite Crisis as we know it. Though, if you need a refresher, we of course dissected it in issue 13 if you want to go back to catch up. But this particular fracture point in time, however, takes place in the lead in as Max Lord has Ted Kord, the Blue Beetle at his mercy. Unlike in the core timeline, though, here it's Lord who gets gunned down. As the Brother One satellite begins to launch the Omax in response to Lord's death, Beetle springs into action, hoping to stop it. 
He's explaining how dark the world has become and how they need to change it to Lord's right hand. Former Bruce Wayne bodyguard Sasha Bordeaux is our four watchers look on from their realm outside of the universe. This, of course, is Superman and Lois from Earth 2, alongside Alexander Luther and Superboy Prime. Now working in concert with the Brother Eye, we jump ahead two weeks to Booster Gold storming into the Watchtower meeting of the Trinity, demanding to know why they aren't looking for Beetle, who nobody has seen. Clark and Diana express their concerns, but are at a loss on what to do, but as always, Bruce keeps his own counsel as he contacts Sasha, who fills him in on what's been going on. Ted turned the power of the eye onto the Society of Supervillains and took the Black Diamond of Calypso and its power from the insane Gene Loring before going to the Wizard Shazam seeking a way to contain the Spectre. Now, if you'll recall, without Beetle's influence, the Society will launch their assault on the world and the Wizard Shazam is going to fall at the hands of the Spectre, leaving Billy the new Guardian of the Rock and everything that we saw from there on. But wait, there's more as Beetle has also managed to catch a Zeta Beam and broker a piece heading off the Ran-Thangar War, which isn't something that we looked at very much, just kind of on the peripherals, but was another one of the big crises leading into Infinite Crisis at the time. Now, controlled freak Batman isn't real big on the idea of Ted wielding that kind of power unilaterally when Cord himself steps from the shadows. Tensions mount as Ted rebuffs Batman's desiring a voice in the, the decisions to be made and leaves a helpless Dark Knight detective at a loss as to his next move. Booster, with growing concern for his friends, tries to get Beetle to take a step back and really think about the things he's doing. How he's starting to sound more and more like Max when he's stopped cold as Ted admits that of course he's not like Max. That's why he had to kill him. Feeling betrayed at the revelation, Gold storms out, leaving a distracted Beetle leading an assault on the Society's ringleaders. They're met inside the base by a scene of absolute carnage. Lots of deaths, not the Marvel comic cameo. Deathstroke and Luther are dead. Black Adam has been ripped in half. Their shock is only increased when Lex Luthor comes striding into the room from off to the side. He had a plan for the universe, one that would have fixed everything. But Beetle had to screw it up. It's at this point that Beetle's team is ripped to shreds as he's facing Alexander and Superboy Prime, whose plans have completely been thwarted by Beetle. Beetle logics them, which gets Prime to start questioning his own role in this, as this is before his full breakdown. Alex goes to take out Prime when Cal and Lois arrive, only to be incinerated by a kryptonite blast, which causes Prime to then kill Alex with heat vision. Snagging Alex's tower built for the remains of the Anti-Monitor, they take it and hook it up to the Brother One satellite, and Beetle asks it, what is the greatest threat facing the world using its power to see through across all of the multiverse? And it comes back with a simple answer, the League itself. He looks for a way out, but he's trapped by his own best friend, Logic, and Cord can't refute the evidence, and so sends Prime to battle the Titans as he launches an attack on the Watchtower, echoing the way the actual Infinite Crisis event opened. Ted, though, isn't just you-o-macking the faceless population, though rat relying on the numbers, but rather has been busy tailoring it to select specific targets such as the Trinity, who falls under his control. History has again repeated itself, I guess, as Prime has again lost it while battling the Titans, prompting Ted to take over him as well. As he turns his focus to the Titans, Booster enters the field. Ted tries to explain as Brother is urging him to kill Gold, but Booster's seeing no choice and draws a gun ready to end things. 
Brothers countermeasures kicked in act automatically, killing Boost, and this is the act that pushes Cord over the brink as he authorizes lethal force and the world falls under his heel. Another classic event twisted to break even the noblest of heroes, and I'm enjoying these and what it is so far, and I'm really looking forward to Judas' contract, which is coming up next. We have a lot to get to this week's X-Watch, but I've got to start with the book that I've probably been most looking forward to from the entire relaunch, New Mutants, from Jonathan Hickman, Ed Brisson, and Rod Rice. Pre-90s animated series, X-Force was my go-to book, which I continued with for over 100 issues. A step further from that, though, was when I dug into their past and snapped up every copy of New Mutants that I could find. Now, War Children a few months ago got me jonesing for these classic stories, and while those aren't necessarily what this is, it's always nice to see old friends. What we've got here is a classic lineup of Mirage, Cypher, Karma, Wolfsbane, Sunspot, and Majik, joined by former Gen Xers Mondo and Chamber. But we open up on Wolfsbane, Rain Sinclair, newly reborn on Krakoa after having recently been beaten to death in a hate attack pre-Dawn of X. She's finding a moment of peace, reveling in her new life, before we join with Doug and Mondo conducting a bit of an experiment. The experiment leads to Krakoa basically hijacking Mondo's body. It says this is a bad thing before cutting itself off, leaving a couple of confused and slightly horrified boys in puzzlement at what they exactly had just happened. The team meets up in their home-slash-dome where, after Ileana says she'll cut someone if they mess with her coffee, the casual camaraderie they share is plain to see, but something's missing. Something's off. So it's off to space aboard the pirate ship Starjammer to go bring their boy Sam home. The Krakoan plants, both the gateway grown on the jammer and the team seedling to grow away home, start reacting to each other, forcing Mondo to store it inside him, which, as we saw earlier, may not just be a minor detail here. Corsair lays down some general guidelines as they approach Benevolent, the last outpost on the edge of Shi'ar space. They're stopping here so the jammers can jam, do illegal stuff if you will, and the kids need to stay on the ship. This is a bad place overrun by zealots, and they don't need to be tortured. Roberto, Sunspot, tries to find the silver lining to the whole thing in the face of the others being ready to put an end to the atrocities, but they're just not having it, so Danny, Mirage, gets him out of the way, and Majit takes the rest of them after the jammers. Unfortunately, reality sets back in at this point, as there's no evil cult, there's no tortures, the star jammers are pirates, and they're here to steal as the kids find out just before the Chiar army charges in. The jammers and the new mutants get separated, with Ileana getting stunned in the crossfire. They take to cover to regroup, but out of subtle options, they resort to the hammer approach as Jonathan, Chamber, draws aside his half-mask and unleashes the seething psionic energies rolling within. It's not enough, though, as they and Sunspot are captured. Yeah, Cyclops' dad kicked him off the ship and they abandoned him there. So things aren't going super well for our heroes as Bobby makes a few calls to his space lawyers and we pick back up with their day in court. Judge ain't feeling it though as, re as he announces a resounding guilty handing them a lifetime sentence where they're remanded to the custody of Cannonball, Sam Guthrie, and his wife the Imperial Guardswoman Smasher. So basically, they have a get-out-of-jail-free card, but not everybody's thrilled as Bobby takes Sam's obvious happiness as almost a slap in the face, which leads to he himself getting punched in the face by Smasher. Not that I blame her, though. 
Here he is moping over his wounded pride that his buddy wasn't missing him while they had to leave actual responsibilities to come bail them out and he acts like a child. That manages to pierce his conceit cloud of conceit a bit as they end up heading out. Now we've got the original New Mutants family for the most part reunited as they travel through the cold reaches of space with Roberto filling Sam in on everything that he's missed being lost in space. Now, as we've seen over the past several months, there have been a lot of changes to Earth and everything the mutants are going through, and Sam is absolutely stunned, but Smasher interrupts their moment with some news. They've been pardoned and are no longer enemies of the Imperium, but a situation's come up and they're being conscripted into dealing with it. At this point, we join up to the Shi'ar homeworld Chandelar, where we find that the nearest galactic cluster of the homeworld has fallen. The man currently leading the Empire, Gladiator, sees the need to put Xandra, the artificial seed created from Xavier and Lilandra, upon the throne while he seeks once more to lead the guards. He knows she's not ready yet, and that's why he sent Smasher and friends to bring in her aunt, former Shi'ar terrorist number one, Deathbird, to help ease her into it. Again, I have a long, intimate history with these guys, so perhaps I'm biased, but I'm really interested on where this series is heading, as it has potentially huge ramifications for Marvel's cosmic stories going forward. Having caught up with the second generation, I thought we'd tackle the new spin on X-Force, brought to us by Benjamin Percy and Joshua Katsara. We open up on a masked cabal of humans with a decidedly anti-mutant bias, sitting in session beginning with a blood test for each and every member to prove their purity. One hesitates momentarily before leaping up, revealing herself to be Domino as she goes on the offensive, but the numbers are just too much, and down she goes. As the apparent leader moves in with a knife in hand, we transition to the Isle of Krakoa, and that bouncing blue ball of fur, Hank McCoy, is studying their new homeland. His study is interrupted as he is attacked by a savage beast that flees at Wolverine's reproach, sensing the alpha predators on the field. Beast restrains Logan, wanting to study it to learn where it came from, but always to the point, Logan cuts to the chase. No matter where you're at, there will always be a predator, and Krakoa is making them soft. It's at this point that panic starts to take hold at the beach as a strange vessel approaches, but Black Tom Cassidy, who's wired into the natural defenses of the island, tells them all to stand down as Captain Pride and the Marauders. Jean, however, is still on guard as she senses great pain from the ship as we see that their man on the ground, Colossus, has had his metal ripped or slagged open and is hanging on by a thread. At this point, it's been a week since Domino went off the grid, so Charles puts Sage on digging into it while he himself journeys to Sokovia, where they plan to sign the treaty with Krakoa. At the same time, we see the Reavers are hijacking a plane and launch an all-out assault on the island. They rampage around, gunning down the innocent, slowly being taken down one by one at the hands of the X-Men, but not before Charles himself is gunned down, and perhaps, more importantly, his constant companion his Cerebro helmet as well. So now we have essentially everyone on the island gathered around the fallen body of Xavier. It's a solemn scene, and here we're going to be getting another look at the resurrection process. It'll hopefully answer the question of just what are the stakes now if they're just going to be reborn again. Is Xavier essential to the entire Enterprise? Will the backrupt Cerebros come online? Jean has faith in the process as well as her ability to do it, but the clock is ticking. This won't remain a secret, and if it doesn't work, everything that they've built comes crashing down. Deep in the heart of the island, we see THE Cerebro, intertwined with the island itself, and it's from here they'll make their attempt. 
Meanwhile, at the autopsy for the assailants, led by Cecilia Reyes, they learned that it's not the Reavers of old, rather a new group making use of their methods, and they managed to scramble the censors by grafting some of Domino's very skin to themselves, hence the conflicting messages before the attack. One is still alive, and since they keep him from applying some judicious torture, Logan insists they go get Gene in there to read the creep's mind while he goes hunting. The trail leads him to South Korea, where he's met by the future Phoenix host Kid Omega himself, Quentin Quire. Picture the epitome of the cocky teen rebelliousness backed up by a Jean Grey-like power with the foreknowledge that he's destined to play host. Insufferable barely sums it up, but the kid is good, as he leads Logan to all the stabbing. Now back on the crack, Beast is feeling the pressure as he tries to get the new Prime Cerebro online, but it's not much easier with a red-headed voice yammering in your mind that the clock is ticking. Logan and Quire, meanwhile, is easily dispatched the outside guards, Quentin getting ever closer to getting stabbed, but what they find brings them up short as they're faced by a freestanding nervous system as these people are making their own assassins. Logan's had about enough of Quire's ego when the partial men attack. Omega is inexplicably cut off from his powers, but Logan's not, as the best there is of what he does goes to Claw City as Quire stumbles upon Domino, floating in a tank with large swaths of her skin sliced right off her. More than you would expect from what the Force had used to, you know, sneak into Krakoa, which has me wondering if we're not seeing the early stages of the post-humanity as they're seeking to add their, her luck abilities to their soldier, but we'll have to wait to see. Now, before the New Mutants transitioned to X-Force, they had an earlier spinoff, which, I mean, heck, why don't we throw that on in there, too, which has been done here by as Brian Hill and Simon Kardansky have re resurrected the Fallen Angels brand. We start here with Psylocke, the Asian assassin that Bretzi Braddock had long swapped bodies with, now once again in her own body, adjusting to life on Krakoa. I find it odd that she's going by Psylocke when that was Betsy's name, and there was a precedent as she had joined the X-Men and Braddock's body in the 90s under the name Revenge, but I guess we'll roll with it. Her peaceful meditation is lost as she's gripped by a presence that seeks to draw comparisons between itself with what God's speaking to Abraham, is it bearing warning that her enemy is named Apoth. Cryptic, dire warnings of the future are all she gets as she's left stunned when it vanishes in a flash. Understandably a bit shell-shocked from the event, Psylocke seeks out Magneto, where we get the answer to my question. Braddock, against her will, I have to add, stole her body, so she's stealing the name. Eric disregards the whole thing. Charles was just murdered, so Krakoa is on lockdown, and no one's chasing after a bad dream. This sets her off, with Magnus admiring her fire as he directs her to take the matter to Nathaniel Essex, the man called Sinister. He won't make an exception for her, but if she finds her own way out, well then, what's he to do? East as the beak flies, at the bar sinister, we get an almost deal with a devil as Essex prods her psyche with verbal barbs. He pushes her even more, getting a perverse satisfaction at their individual darknesses, but it's enough to win his help, but he strongly discourages her attempting this alone. Periodically throughout the issue, we flash back to Psylocke's childhood and indoctrination as the assassin Quanon, which, needless to say, doesn't appear pleasant in the flashes we see, but it's at this point we meet up with our other heroes, X-23 and Cable. Now, for those of you who may have fallen out of touch, this is the late teens Cable that had come back and killed his older self during extermination, but everything's fine now because, hey, that's comics. They're both feeling restless, which leads to a little party of their own, if you know what I mean. If not, to be clear, they start punching and kicking each other because he's still Cable and she's little Wolverine and that's just what they do. 
Psylocke interrupts, telling them to come find her before just leaving, brushing off Elizabeth's attempts to clear things up between them. The two teens, clearly bored with the five minutes of peace that they've had so far, follow the reborn telepathic ninja assassin to hear her out. They're both on board, but Laura knows what's best, and they need to leave Nate behind. He's earned this peace, she says. So they ditch him and head off to Tokyo, where Psylocke taps her old Quanon contacts, seeking a lead on Apoth, but it's hard. The figure is nothing more than smoke, and no one's sure they actually exist. They watch a video of a girl on a train ODing when Psylocke has flashes back to when she was punished by seeing her lover and child killed for her being weak. It really doesn't make me think any better about the Quanon Training Academy, I've got to say, and it's clear that it's left a scar. Coming out of the memory, the switch flips and Psy attacks, sideblading the information she's seeking while Laura decimates the surrounding guards. The trail leads them to an isolated barn, but their game plan of slaughtering those inside has to be put on hold as it's filled with children hooked up with overclock devices. Now, overclock was something that I didn't get into before, so I guess we ought to now. It's a new addition, I believe, to the canon. It's a virtual narcotic that hacks the nervous system, creating euphoria. These kids have been forcibly OD'd, save for one, that's being controlled by a Apoth. All we get is clarification that there will be no middle ground here between them, as Apoth kills even this last child, ending the meeting. No alternatives left. Psylocke returns the Sinister, promising access to all of Apoth's stuff for his help while hiding their actions from the Council. From there, she asserts her position, dispatching Laura and Nate to find her more allies that she can trust. We then get a not-quite-so-deep cup that shows us a Quanon nearing womanhood carrying out an assassination before we come back to her and Laura walking Krakoa, forging a bond. For so long, Laura felt the unrelenting rage and anger swirling within kept up a wall between her and the others as none of them could really understand. Then she saw the same in Psylocke when they touched minds, and she's, she's all ready to make Psylocke her angry Yoda, but apparently she's not ready for the lessons to be taught. Perhaps she's too old for training. I don't know, but it's on to young Nate, who they find standing near, but again separate from those celebrating. Krakoa is apparently like a 24-7 spring break resort, and he just keeps hovering in the area, hoping in vain to get caught up in the spirit along with the others, but as of yet, it's for naught, but he has been more successful in finding a lead on Overclock. The village of Sal Mateus has been conscripted as slave labor for a cartel. Our heroes have something to go hit, which will be therapeutic for them all, but Psylocke maintains that they're after Apoth and Apoth alone. Cable storms out, leaving Psylocke staring in the crackling flames when Allison Blair Dazzler steps in to offer support, but Psylocke's far from that point as of now. Now, a final flashback shows us a failed hit from her past, where she did let some of the targets flee upon seeing the love that they shared. It changes nothing in the end, as they're eventually captured and tortured anyway, but it does show us a glimmer of her less murder-stabby side. Even then, a conversation with Sinister leads her back to Nate, now ready to shut the operation down. As they move in on the location, in past the barbed wire fence, onto the silent compound, they just begin to sense something wrong when a giant multi-legged machine launches an attack as we close out. I'll admit, I still haven't quite made up my mind on Fallen Angels. I mean, I like the cast a lot, and I'm intrigued at the possibilities that come from watching these three damaged heroes grow together. I'm just, I'm not quite sold on Apoth as of yet, but I'll be keeping an eye on it as to see where it goes. 
Now, while we did have new issues of Excalibur and Marauders this week, I'm going to go ahead and push covering them off until their next issue as, as we make our final stop with the core X-Men from Jonathan Hickman and Lionel Francis Yu. We find ourselves back on the blue area of the moon at Chateau Summers when Scott tells the kids, Cable and Rachel, going by prestige at this point, that a new island has mysteriously appeared 100 miles off the coast of Krakoa and now their new home is making a beeline for it. No one can figure out what's going on with Cypher over getting arrested by the Shi'ar, so it's Clan Summers to investigate the old-fashioned way. Fire erupting from its center, Cable's definitely questioning his decision not to bring a bigger gun as they land. They've got five hours until Krakoa gets there, so time's running out as Rachel scans and finding only one higher-level humanish mind, and you'll never guess where it's at, the heart of the volcano. Three hours of fighting through the foliage, Cyclops finally abandons subtlety, blasting them a path. Scott and Rachel are busy planning a vacation when Nathan spots movement. A weird rhino thing is checking them out when it's snatched up by the writhing tendrils of a, of a giant tentacle monster with a mouth. The Summers Three leap to the attack as we cut to the target of their hunt, a pale ethereal figure deep in the Eric Maw. That's the big volcano we mentioned earlier. Yes, I said the Eric Maw. This is in fact Krakoa's other half, Arako, that we saw cast from this plane by Apocalypse back in Powers of Ten. I know I've been kind of skipping back and forth over the back matter, but which is an absolute crime that I need to rectify, so... I'm going to start with this bit here as we see the hierarchy of the Araku summoners, who dominate the Dark Beasts. I assume our new friend is one, but we for sure find out that their numbers have dwindled and Araku's time draws short. Of course our heroes have defeated the Demon Squid as we rejoin them, now riding some of those rhino things when they have their first encounter with the Summoner. There's definitely a language barrier to be overcome here, but there's no time for that though as Nate gives it an offering of his last thermal grenade which it activates and explodes and pisses the Summoner straight off. Cable blames him for turning it on, but not understanding, he responds, rather rightly after having been blown up, by summoning his dark beasts and unleashing them upon our heroes. The struggle is real until Rachel reaches out with her powers, clearing up the linguistic issues just in time for the islands to meet and join as one. I'm curious if there will be any little islands floating around soon, but I digress. Later, we see the Summoner meet with Apocalypse, who may not know him, but can recognize the line, as it's the line of the, his own original horseman, as war was this one's mother. The original horsemen hold the line, but Oroko is near to falling, and it's at this point that Ensabad Nur vows to save all of his children. Here we cut over to the Savage Land, where they've set up fields for growing things, as we witness some new arrivals who strike here at the heart of their production operations. We don't learn much, if anything, about them here because it's immediately back to the island for a meeting of the Quiet Council, Krakoa's ruling body. We finally get some back and forth between Jean and Emma, which, given the history, it was something that I'd been wanting to see and I thought that maybe it had fallen by the wayside, but the triangle appears to be present as they take little snipes back and forth, but it's hard to tell whether it's a joking about something that's no longer an issue between them or concealing their real dislike. I'm not sure. This summoning is, of course, a response to the Savage Land Strike, because more than just an outpost going dark, this is affecting Kakoa itself as its mass is shrinking and its wildlife grows more and more restless. Our attackers have trapped the Savage Land mutants, encasing them in hard green substance, and it's when they remove their mass that we see its three elderly ladies, one of which has cancer. They're not your dear grandma, though, as they go from talking of God and refusing to swear before laughing at a past husband's death as they set out to pick the flowers for which they came. 
It's at this point that Cyclops leads Emma Frost and Sebastian Shaw through a portal to the Australian Outback. There was a time during the Claremont era where the Outback was the home of the X-Men while they were off the grid with the world believing them dead. I'm not sure if that's why Wolverine had an Australian accent in Pride of the X-Men, the animated show, but I know moving there's how we met Jubilee and the man they've come to see, Gateway. Now, if you've been with me here for a minute, you might remember Gateway as the guy who opened the portal for the human armada during Age of Apocalypse. Gateway makes gateways, which is why they've come. He can open a portal to the Arctic homeland of the Savage Land since their own personal gateways are not working. They're taken aback at finding that they've been invaded by octogenarians. Horticulture, as we come to find that they're called, have no desire to bargain as they bring Shaw's sales pitch to an end with the green stuff, which shuts him down. They proceed to kick him while he's down, prompting Scott to reluctantly intervene with an optic blast. But damn, these women are a bit old to be going out with the X-Men, and one of them breaks their hip. Or so she claims, which the sucker Scott falls for and gets the green for his troubles. Now, in his defense, if he could control falling for women, his home life would be much less complicated. Thus far, the three crones have had their way with everything they've faced, leaving just the White Queen standing in their way, and she's already said she can't hit an old woman. Before that can truly be put to the test, Frost wants to know just what their problem was, and the answer is simple, if a fairly common one. You and the mutant race are screwing up their plan. Where they break from the norm is that their goals have set them against humans just as much as the mutants, because we are all destroying the planet and breaking its cycle of life, and the three of them have spent a combined 200 years seeing man do this. They want to ensure the balance by reducing the population, and then they can control who eats or not, as well as what grows where. The mutant resurrection process, on top of the Krakoan plant's effects at extending human life, are the very type of thing that they're trying to stop. They had already figured out how to hack Krakoa to take control of the gates, but they needed more samples to go further with the mutant island, which they now have as they head back out as Frost literally does nothing to stop them. Admittedly, her psi powers had had no effect, but she didn't even try to take them on in her diamond form. Granted, she'd have probably just been green too, but she didn't even try. Defeated and licking their wounds, the X-Men return to the council to report that there's a problem. These first few issues here have definitely been less grandiose than, say, House and Powers were, but it's kept me intrigued with the unexpected at every turn. In no way was this what I came in expecting, but much like Dawn of X on the whole, they're taking a new direction with some of my favorite characters, and I'm absolutely loving it. I guess that'll about do it for this week. The plan is still to release Volume 2 of Comic Club Monthly next week, so that I have time to both finish Time Runs Up and also get ahead on Secret Wars. I'll admit I'd kind of forgotten just how big it was when I threw it up on the Twitter poll, and it's like 150 issues, so I'm going to have to trim some because I don't want to spend more than two or three weeks on it, but that doesn't mean I don't have to read it first in order to make that call. Remember to reach out through any of the methods that we talked about at the top of the show, and please take the time to leave me a review wherever you happen to be listening to me. Thanks for coming to get down and nerdy with me, and remember, with great knowledge comes great responsibility. I'll see you next week.